Welcome back to the program. We're coming up on the 70th anniversary of D-Day. Not only one of the most significant events of the 20th century, but one of the most significant decisions ever made by a president to send men into battle. In a world in which decision-making has become an expertise, when presidential leadership is re-examined almost every day, it serves us well from both a historical and a contemporary view to understand what really went into making that fateful decision, how it changed the course of war, of history, and what it might teach us about navigating a dangerous world today. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Nigel Hamilton. He is a best-selling and award-winning biographer of JFK, of General Montgomery, and of Bill Clinton. He's a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the author of the new book, The Mantle of Command, FDR at War, 1941-1942. Nigel Hamilton, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Delight to have you here. It is hard to imagine, certainly at this point, 70 years after the fact, that there are facts, that there are pieces of information, that there's so much about what went into that D-Day decision that we're really just now beginning to understand. Uh, that's true. Uh, certainly when I started work on, on uh, the Mantle of Command, I, I never dreamed that there was so much material that uh, either hadn't been accessed or that people didn't want to make public. What was preventing some of it from being made public? Well, I suppose I'd say, I'd say at the end of the day, it's a question of egos. The, the people who were in high positions of command in World War II, as I know very well from having known Field Marshal Montgomery pretty intimately, uh, you know, had big egos. You know, that's how they got to the top, and that's how they stayed at the top. Otherwise, they were very quickly shoved aside. And almost all of them um, managed to survive the war and write about their accomplishments. You know, whether you're talking about uh, Eisenhower or Patton or uh, General Marshall or Admiral Leahy or Admiral King or General Arnold or uh, Secretary Stimson uh, or, or Winston Churchill. You know, they all survived the war and wrote their memoirs or got somebody else uh, an authorized biography to write uh, their, their, their life story. And... You know, in doing so, they naturally saw themselves um, as uh, really important figures in the prosecution of the war and victors in, in terms of the war. They felt they had not only helped win the war, but to some extent that they personally had won it. And, you know, like Winston Churchill had been voted out of office in Britain, and he was, you know, he wanted to get back in office. So, you know, he had a vested interest in showing that he, rather than the President of the United States, was the architect of Allied victory in World War Two. And, you know, to add to all that, you know, some of them were quite good, or very good writers. Winston Churchill wrote six volumes of memoirs, the Second World War, and he won the Nobel Prize for it primarily. I mean, you can't do better than that. And so, you know, that that Churchillian view of how the war, war was prosecuted and who was behind the major decisions, 
you know, has rather guided historians and the focus uh, ever since uh, the, those books came out after the war. And it's just sad in 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 the case of uh, Franklin Roosevelt that he died only weeks before the end of the war in Europe, and that um, his he never actually got to write the book that he'd intended to. I found, for instance, that he had begun it uh, in 19, the summer of 1941 before war came to the United States. But it was unfortunate that the press of war and, and his responsibilities um, made it impossible for him to write it, just as it was impossible for Churchill to write during the war. But because he didn't survive, he, he couldn't uh, pen his own account. And, you know, that has largely been, you know, shoved to the sidelines. And um, I, I was just amazed at uh, the amount of uh, diaries and, and memoranda and documents that uh, historians either overlooked or or just uh, were not because they were writing about you know the the 50th book about <laughs> Eisenhower as a commander or General Marshall or or, or uh, General MacArthur they weren't interested in the president's view of how the war was prosecuted. Um, and it's it's perhaps something to do with the nature of being a a biographer, a serious biographer, that you you focus your attention rather like a spotlight, and when you go into an archive, you shine that spotlight on the areas which you're interested in, those that puzzle you, or you're somehow intuitively skeptical about, and. And so, to my own surprise, I, I was able to find a, a huge amount of documentation that um, hadn't been revealed before. Is it, as you look at it in terms of the big picture, is it a zero-sum game? In other words, what I mean by that is to understand the involvement that Roosevelt had in making that decision, does it take away from Churchill in some way? Um, I think it does a, a, a little bit, Jeff, because, um, as I said, you know, Ch Churchill was writing his his uh, autobiography or his memoirs of the war with an agenda. You know, th th there was a reason why he was excluding certain information, and and a reason why he packed it with other information, which was. Um, uh, perfectly true and, and, and reasonable, but it was very selective. It, it, it was designed to show him, Winston Churchill, in the very best light so that he could become Prime Minister of Britain again, um, having been out of office for a number of years. Um, and I don't fault him for that. I think it's perfectly natural. But I, I do think we we have to be more honest now. And I I personally think Franklin Roosevelt was the, the greatest American president of, of the uh, 20th century. And, and I think in some ways, arguably, America's greatest commander-in-chief. And certainly since Lincoln. And I think, um, I think it behooves us to recognize that. And if in recognizing that we 
we somewhat <laughs> downplay Winston Churchill's role and, and reputation. I I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, and it and, and it's not to be um, you know dismissive or, or uh, in, overcritical of Churchill. It's it's just to uh, correct the balance. Let's put it that way. Mm. The balance has been too much weighted in Winston Churchill's favor. And, you know, I met Winston Churchill. I didn't just meet him. I stayed with him as a student. I'm probably the last person by incredible fortune <laughs> to outside the Churchill family to have, to have stayed with Winston Churchill, you yes. know. And, and I spent 10 years of my life writing uh, the military history of World War II and, and, and uh, particularly Dear Marshall Montgomery's role in it and, and assessing Winston Churchill's role. And it's, I, I don't feel um, any kind of um, you know, historian's animosity or what towards Churchill. I think he was a very great leader. But I do want to correct the impression that Churchill won the war. I think... Undoubtedly, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the mastermind of the military direction of World War II, and that story has largely gone untold. And, um, you know, I've just turned 70 last <laughs> February. I live in the United States. I am an American citizen now, and I want to tell this story. Talk a little bit about Roosevelt's decision in the face of opposition from Churchill, and, and more profoundly, opposition from, from Roosevelt's own generals. Well, it, it, it's a long story, Jeff, but um, in this, the, the Mantle of Command is, is uh, the first of two volumes, so there will be a sequel to it. And in this first volume, what I discovered was that um, the... War Department in Washington and the Navy Department, but particularly the War Department, uh, which was headed up by uh, Secretary Henry Stimson um, and run, directed by the United States Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, General Marshall. They and the senior generals in at the War Department were... Uh, like the president's decision to go for Germany first rather than Japan, because as the president said, you could you could defeat Japan and it wouldn't affect the war in Europe. I mean, Hitler would go on being the dictator of Europe, whereas if you if you dealt with Hitler, Japan would would fall off the branch very quickly as it did. They liked that policy, but they felt that the way to do it was to cross the English Channel. Uh, to launch a second front and to go straight for Berlin, to use American uh, air and and particularly uh, ground power uh, to defeat the Wehrmacht and end the war in Europe, after which we could move on to Japan. And what they didn't take into account was that in uh, 1942, shortly after Pearl Harbor, when these decisions were being made, the no American had ever fired a, fired a bullet at the Wehrmacht. And that there were over 25 German divisions, including Panzer divisions, in France waiting for us to do that very thing. And tragically, in the summer of 1942, that 
uh, let's call it a, a mini version of D-Day, was actually launched. And it was targeted on a little French seaport called Dieppe. And not American soldiers, not even British soldiers, but Canadian soldiers were chosen to carry out this uh, rehearsal, if you like, for D-Day. And almost a thousand Canadians were killed in cold blood on the beaches of, of Dieppe without even getting off the beaches, and another 2,000 were wounded or captured. It was an absolute fiasco. And the president, that confirmed Franklin Roosevelt's view that it was too early to launch a D-Day in 1942. And he therefore went back to his, what people called his great pet scheme, which was to land somewhere on the periphery of Europe in great strength, using American sea power and air power particularly, to land in great strength and build up United States forces in such a way that the men could get experience in combat and in coalition combat, fighting with, with uh, coalition partners like the British, get the necessary experience they would need in order to land across the English Channel and defeat the Wehrmacht. And he found it incredibly difficult to convince the top generals in Washington, all of whom covered this up after the war. And it got to the point in the fall of 1942 when... Uh, the Secretary of War uh, actually, uh, I, I call it a near mutiny, organized a near mutiny of himself and, and General Marshall and the senior generals, where at one point uh, the Secretary of War turned to General Marshall and said, if you were made dictator, would you stop the president's plan to land not across the channel but in northwest Africa where we can build up those forces? Would you stop that plan and, and perhaps switch our whole war strategy to the defeat of Japan? And Marshall said, yes, I would. Hmm. I mean, it's an incredible moment, which is, <laughs> can you imagine the Secretary of War, you know, threatening mutiny? And... When the president insisted, no, we will do this. We will land troops not across the English Channel in 1940. We will land them in Algeria and Morocco. We build, we'll build up from there and gradually gain the combat experience we need. When he insisted on that, the Secretary of War bet him that the, the uh, operation, which was called Torch, would fail. I mean... Again, all this has been... I, I, you could ask a thousand citizens of our country, and I bet you not one single one will know that. You know, that is the... the, the I think the, um, the, the, the representation of, of where we're at and, and how we've misunderstood so much about World War II and particularly about D-Day. And I think it's a huge tribute to the memory of FDR that... Uh, he insisted. Uh, he overrode his generals. Um, I think it's a wonderful <laughs> illustration of how wise the founders were 
in terms of the Constitution by insisting that the uh, President of the United States should be ultimately the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Armed Forces and uh, and that we do not have a military Commander-in-Chief who is allowed to make, an unelected person who is allowed to make the decisions for us. What is it that made Roosevelt think this could work? Well, as I say, he he didn't know it could work in 1942. In fact, he was more and more convinced it couldn't work. And the tragedy at Dieppe, which took place on uh, August the 19th in 1942, the tragedy of Dieppe was very quickly reported to him. And he felt very strongly about it. After all, the Canadians were not just our allies, they were our next-door neighbors. He constantly saw the Canadian Prime Minister who would come down to Washington and discuss matters. And the Canadians were producing a huge amount of um, military uh, resources, uh, both um, not just in men, but in munitions towards the war effort. And he felt very, very uh, upset by the... um, you know, almost the murder of these poor Canadians at Dieppe. And so he was absolutely determined that D-Day would not take place in 1942. In fact, he was so determined that when he went out to Casablanca at the beginning of 1943, he insisted again that it don't, that D-Day should not be launched in 1943 that American troops had to get the experience they needed in real combat time. And if you think he went out into Casablanca in January of 1943 and the Battle of Kasserine took place a month later, with, uh, which demonstrated just how green our forces were and how much we had to learn in order to become really professional... Again, I think that's a tremendous tribute to uh, to the president president's realism. But of course, the the interesting thing is that once U.S. forces had gained the experience in combat and in command, I should should emphasize. I mean, the president wanted to see how Eisenhower would work as a supreme commander, and he was very pleased with him. He also wanted to see how his very much the president's protege, uh, George Patton, would do in combat. And he did wonderfully mm. <laughs> in North Africa and then in Sicily. And if he hadn't slapped two soldiers' faces and drawn his gun and called them cowards, you know, he undoubtedly would have done even better in 1943. But the president was very pleased with him and certainly made sure that Patton was although somewhat disgraced, was was not uh, fired. It was too important. And so during the months, the spring of 1943, as U.S. forces gained more experience, the president became more and more confident that D-Day could be mounted. N- not in, he didn't think it could be done in the fall of 43 because the, the weather in, um, in the English Channel becomes really uh, brutal. Um, so he said, well, the, the invasion must take place. Originally, it was, it was determined that it would take place in May of 1944. Eventually, it was slightly delayed to June of 1944. And to his consternation, 
Winston Churchill disagreed. He thought they'd always been on the same page about this because Winston liked the idea of a, an American landing in northwest Africa because the British were, were attacking from Egypt and that meant that they could squeeze the Germans between them, Rommel's forces, which is what they did. But Churchill didn't like the idea of crossing the English Channel. Dieppe had upset him considerably because, you know, in a sense, Winston Churchill was not just prime minister of Britain. He was a, a leader of the British Empire, and that included the Dominion of Canada. And he felt rather guilty about that. And, and he, he arrived in, in Washington in the spring, the very month we are in, in May uh, of 1943, and said... Uh, he arrived with 160 staffers to back him, including the British chiefs of staff, and arrived at the White House and said, Mr. President, we can't do D-Day in 1944. We may not even be able to do it in 1945, and we, we might even have to do it in 1946. Because Winston Churchill so feared a, a calamity. What ultimately brought Churchill around, or did he ever really come around? Um, I think, uh, Jeff, between us, I don't think he ever did come around until until it happened. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Monty, whom I got to know very well, told me this um, incredible story about how Churchill arrived at his, at Monty's headquarters. You know, Montgomery was the... Eisenhower was the supreme commander. Montgomery was commander in chief of the uh, the ground armies and um, for the invasion, and that included uh, two the invasion and the campaign that would follow, and that included uh, two U.S. armies, a British army and a Canadian army, a you know, huge uh, assembly. And uh, Monty had really taken over the planning and the, the preparations and above all the rehearsals. Um, with tremendous enthusiasm and confidence. And suddenly Churchill, a few weeks before D-Day, said he would like to visit Monty's headquarters. And when he arrived, he said, you know, he wanted to speak to Monty's staff because he, Winston Churchill, didn't like the number of clerks and typists that were going over with the invasion forces. <laughs> and Monty said, you know, took him aside and said, you can't speak to my staff like that. Sit down, Prime Minister, and let me tell you, if you don't like the way I'm preparing for D-Day, I can always resign. You know, two million men are looking to me and to General Eisenhower to lead them in battle. You know, the plans have all been made. You can't start meddling now because you don't really believe in this operation. And you don't need to worry. It's going to be all right. <laughs> it's an incredible moment. <laughs> Monty loved telling me that story, <laughs> how Churchill burst into tears. You know, and I, I mention it now because I think it's such a human illustration you know there is the british prime minister who has almost single-handedly led his nation and to some degree the british empire in terms of the morale of of uh, huge populations uh going through a, a modern world war uh on a scale nobody'd ever seen or dreamed of before and 
he, Winston Churchill, was seen as the symbol of, of opposition to the Nazis. And he'd been doing that since 19, May of 1940, uh, since the defeat of the French. And uh, so, you know, I feel retrospectively huge compassion for Winston Churchill. I don't think that that particular little story, some people say, oh, it can't have been true. Montgomery was exaggerating. I don't think Monty was exaggerating at all. I think, I know it happened because I interviewed, I not only knew Montgomery very well, but I interviewed some of the staffers who were in the next door room uh, when I was doing my Monty books. But I think it's a, it's a wonderfully illustrative story of the, the human cost, the human responsibility that uh, Churchill carried. And yes, no wonder he feared it might fail, but uh, the decision had been made to, to make Eisenhower the supreme commander, and the decision had been made to make Montgomery the uh, the land forces commander. And, you know... <laughs> You know, history proved those were very wise decisions. The invasion was just a magnificent success. And Hitler himself had said, this will decide the war. That invasion, the Second Front, would decide the war. And it did. Nigel Hamilton, his book is The Mantle of Command, FDR at War, 1941 to 1942. Nigel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, I've enjoyed it, Chris. Thank, thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 